The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. morning, IBC. Um, I don't get to do this often, so I do always count it a real privilege and a joy to be able to come and, and just um, share from God's Word. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Barry was speaking, and, and it was, as usual, one of those sermons that really hits you, and, and he addressed something that Dallas Willard said. It's this quote that will really kind of Resonate. It's Dallas Willard said that we, our souls were never meant to bear the weight of outcomes. And, and ever since that sermon, I know that that's just something that I've been thinking about. And I sense that it resonated with not just me. I think that it speaks to something that is, is I think, going on widely. And many of us can relate. For some, it just might be the way the world seems um, to be taking us into things that are so hard and bigger than us. And for others, it just might be inside we are um, wrestling because even though we know that we are called by in grace, um, there is still a tendency at times to to just be borne down by the weight of feelings of obligation. Or maybe we are burdened by the weight of outcomes. Or maybe it's, for us, it's scarcity. And for others, you may still be struggling because perhaps for you, faith has always been entangled with legalism. And so today, I thought with this precious opportunity, I would come and maybe if I can, offer a word and and a visit to God's story That might be like a cold drink of water that we all need. And so to that end, what I'd like to do is let's go back to the beginning of the story, the grand story of God, the grand narrative of the Bible, and see what was it meant to be like? What was God's plan and design? And even though we know that history has been a long and difficult, challenging story of struggle and eventually redemption and restoration, that there was always this beautiful, perfect plan to start with. And so let's go there. So to that, I would like us to invite you all to join me in Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 and then verses 15 through 17. And I know this is a very familiar story. And so my invitation today is to come with fresh curiosity and maybe fresh vision and see maybe things that we may have missed. So it starts in verse 8, and it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now jumping ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat and from any tree in the garden, but 
You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So I know there's a tendency in the story. We all just jump to verse 17 and we really get caught up with that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I want to invite you to maybe see it in a fresh way. First of all, this is God's garden. He created it. And in chapter one, he had declared that at the end of his creation story, he said, this is very good. And we see what he meant by good. In this garden, we have several characteristics that I will want to show you as a thread that you will see throughout Scripture for the, the way God intended it to be. So one of them is abundance. This garden is full of trees, and all the trees bear fruit. So there is no scarcity in this place. The second thing is that the trees had fruit that were good for food, so it's a place of nourishment. That's no surprise. But sometimes, here's the thing we gloss over. It says, they were also pleasing to the eye. It was a place of beauty. Note that from the beginning, the plan and beautiful design of God was that we would live in a place where we would have our bodies nourished, as well as our souls. So that is the context for his call to work. When it said he put the man in the garden and commissioned him, he did it in this way. He said to work it and to take care of it. Notice nowhere is there a call or an order or a command to be productive. He just simply said, it's already good. It's already a place of abundance, beauty, and nourishment. So really, the call of God in following him is to co-labor or collaborate with him in something good and beautiful. Now, but that's only part one of the plan and the design. The second part is this awesome invitations. He says, come and eat. Now, I wanna, gonna, I'm going to get a little nerdy for just a moment. In the Hebrew, that verb for eat is actually two verbs combined together. And those two verbs, when they are combined together in this particular syntax, it implies gratuity. It's a prodigal sense of extreme. So here's how I might re-render that little phrase. It says, come and eat freely to your heart's content. So it's an invitation. And he's basically saying, you are in my home and anything here is for you. Except, and now we get to the elephant in the room, that one tree but notice, that's at the end of this passage. It is not meant to dominate our thinking. And so when you put it in context, verse 17 is really saying, there is this one tree, and at this time, it is not good for you. So let's just stay away from that one. But really, it's far outweighed by all the other trees that you can enjoy, that are beautiful and nourishing. So it's really about boundaries. In fact, I, I, here's how I might illustrate it. So in Korean cuisine, we have an ingredient. It's called denjang. It's a brown paste, and 
in culinary terms, we try to dress it up by saying, it's got umame. It's, it's pungent, but flavorful, but really it's fermented soybean. It's, it's rotten beans. And so actually, if we're just going to be real, it's just a jar of rotten bean paste. And when I was growing up, I always dreaded when my mom would use it because I knew that if friends came over, they would immediately just, hey, your house smells like feet. And I was like, no, no, that's dinner. Sorry. Uh, but here's, here's the thing, though. So I, I, we're still kind of new here at IBC, and we hope to get to know all of you better and better as time goes. But one of the things is if you ever get invited to our house, I can promise you my wife, Hannah, is an amazing cook, especially when it comes to Korean food. Her mom's Korean food is phenomenal. And so I am so happy she's my mother-in-law and that she taught Hannah all these recipes. So one of the dishes you may get is called denjang jjigae. And what it is is a rich stew made with that soybean paste. So what was kind of stinky and unattractive in the jar becomes this amazingly delicious meal. But when it's in the jar, I am going to tell you. So if you come over, first of all, you're not going to the living room. You know where you come if you're family and friends. In our house, you come to the kitchen. And I will tell you, help yourself to anything in the fridge. Help yourself to anything in the cupboards. If you want to snack on something, help yourself. I, but I will also tell you, hey, that one jar, though, don't touch it. And, and here's the thing. I am not withholding it from you because I don't care about you, because I don't love you, or I'm being selfish, or I'm being greedy. I'm doing it because I love you. And, and I just know you won't want to smell it and see it until it's ready. So that's a boundary that comes from a place of love not a lack of abundance or provision. But the other thing is, it is a place of beauty in our collaboration. The Christian artist, renowned Christian artist, Makoto Fujimura, who's also a wonderful writer, wrote a book called Culture Care. And in it, he has this wonderful way of framing kind of what I'm talking about at the garden. He says, beauty is a gratuitous gift of the creator God. It finds its source and its purpose in God's character. God, out of his gratuitous love, created a world he did not need because he is an artist. Beauty itself is not, in this sense, necessary. But even if we would agree that beauty is not necessary to our daily survival, it is still necessary for our flourishing. Our sense of beauty and our creativity are central to what it means to be made in the image of a creative God. The satisfaction in beauty we feel is connected deeply with our reflection of God's character to create and value gratuity. It is part of our human nature. So the work that we were called to do was to allow us to flourish in our very imago Dei or image of God. It was to join him in joyful, generative, creative, cultivating work. 
And this was so different from anything else in the world. In the ancient Near East, all the other great civilizations had creation stories. But in their stories, humans were created simply to be slaves of the gods. It is here, though, that the story is so different. Now, I want to take us into two other ways of being able to discern this plan and design in Scripture. So one is interesting. When you look at the way the enemy distorts what God is doing and tries to subvert his work, you get wonderful insight into the actual nature of God's own design and plan. So let's look at Genesis 3 and another well-known story, but once again, fresh curiosity, fresh eyes. In verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit, uh, eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, uh, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. I want to take a moment here to maybe restore Eve's honor a little bit. Oftentimes we have read this story and our takeaway was, boy, that woman was just foolish. She was gullible. She was dumb. That's why the the serpent came to her and took advantage of her. And that's not what the narrator, you're misreading if that's what you're taking away. The narrator begins with this important frame. He says the serpent was the craftiest of all the animals. In fact, you would almost say that he probably felt a sense of rivalry with the humans that were new to this creation. And so the serpent was coming in from the very beginning with much weight on his side in this kind of battle of wits. In fact, he creates a chess match in which the woman is far put in disadvantage, not because of any of her own shortcomings, but because of the serpent's skill. He plays a rhetorical game that changes the rules and forces her on the defensive. And we'll see that right here. He begins by saying, did God really say? And that's a clue right there that he's about to do something no good. And then look what he frames God's invitation from just a few verses ago, how he frames it. Did he really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He absolutely destroys that gratuitous invitation. In fact, in the Hebrew, he takes out that beautiful verbal construction that says, come eat freely to your heart's content. And he turns it into legalism, a rule, a restriction. Did God really say that? Aren't you not supposed to eat anything? And he takes the abundance and nullifies it. He takes the beauty and he diminishes it. And he takes the nourishment and he removes it. So the woman's response makes sense. She says, no, 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 no. That's not what God said. But you see, the serpent was playing a 3D chess match. He he knew that Eve would correct him, but he wanted her to correct him the wrong way. And she does. That's the tragedy. 
And so she said, no, no, we, we're, we can eat. But she now says it as permission rather than invitation. And then in top of that, she adds, and we must not touch it. And God never did say that. You see, this is the, the damaging effect of legalistic religion. It pushes us into a place of creating hedges of rules upon rules upon rules. Because if you think that it's only about following the rules, then you're only going to get trapped in an endless uh, religion of rules to try and one day maybe hit that mark. But all it does is it takes our joy. It robs us of life. The second way that we can look at uh, the plan and design of God by going, is by going to the end of the great story. How does it end? Where do we go? When the redemptive, restorative work of Jesus is complete, what do we see? Because that will also tell you a lot about what the plan always was. So let's go to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, and look at it from a different angle. Now, this is the final place. This is the end of history where things are now set right. It is beautiful once again. And let's look at the nature of that. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of a city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. In Greek, you could actually say trees of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and note this, his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and, the, and his name will be on their foreheads. So, those themes I highlighted earlier, that the garden was always meant to be a place of abundance, it is echoed here. It says here we have these trees of life, now an entire garden full of them, and they never have a fallow season. In the new creation, it is harvest time every month. That's abundance. And there is nourishment and even healing in this place. All the ages and ages of wrong and sin and destruction are reversed for these trees will produce fruit with healing in their leaves for all the nations. And it is also a place of beauty. But note this, the curse has been removed. Jesus has won, but the labor is still there. See, we misunderstand something about the curse. We think that the fall of man was all about work. That's not exactly true. The work comes in this way. The curse was that Adam would now have to work to produce fruit from the ground. You see, before the curse, he did not have to work for the abundance for God provided it. And so, in a sense, the punishment fit the crime. If you reduce my invitation to legalism and production and permission and obligation and outcomes, then so be it. Live your life that way. You have to produce if you want to eat. The curse has been removed. So what are the servants doing now? 
Why are there servants if the curse was about work? Well, see, now we come back to Eden as it was meant to be. And we co-labor in the kitchen of God, helping prepare these beautiful meals that we get to share in out of his generosity and love. And finally, that garden was meant to be a place of intimacy and relationship. It was meant to be a place for family. In fact, we see later on in the tragic story of the fall, when God is looking for man and woman in the garden, he's walking there. It was a place where he was present and the sin took that away. And so we are restored because look at the language. They will see his face. It's the language of intimacy. We are in God's kitchen, not in the living room. We get to be with God and commune with him, even as we joyfully serve. And his name will be on their foreheads. He will know us. So the garden was meant to be a place of good, creative, cultivating, generative work. And that is the call to discipleship. It's never meant to be about obligation, guilt. It's not about outcomes. It's not about production. You know how freeing this is? It's not about your ability. You don't have to make the cut to be in God's garden and to serve in his kitchen. If you come to our house as a guest, you are invited into the kitchen. And I may hand you some stuff and say, hey, can you chop up these onions? And I may say, hey, I'm out back grilling. Can you come out here and help me as I finish off these brats and these burgers? Now, you would never think, boy, Sam's a taskmaster. What a horrible host. He, he invites us over and now he's like forcing us into hard labor. No, it's in the kitchen that we talk. We connect. We share communion, fellowship, and love even as we work. But here's the beauty of it. You're not working for my profit. When we prepare that meal, it's because we're going to sit at a table together and we're going to enjoy this beautiful meal and enjoy the fruit of our labor. This is what discipleship and ministry were meant to be. This is why Jesus said, hey, take that yoke off. It is heavy. I can see that it is crushing you. And take mine. It's light. I've done all the heavy lifting. I am your abundance. You don't ever have to worry about scarcity when you co-labor with me. Because I can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. So just come co-labor with me as members of my family. This is the call. Life in God's inviting space is a life of beauty and nourishment. Doesn't mean it's not a life without service and work. But it's joyful. It's life-giving I'm going to close with Makoto Fujimura once again. He puts it so elegantly. He says, beauty points beyond itself, beyond survival to satisfaction. We think of it in opposition to narrowness, scarcity, drudgery, and constraint. So now we have an opportunity to respond to God. For some of you, it might mean sitting where you are and processing what God might be saying as you are thinking about these words today. For some, it might mean coming forward and we invite you to use this space 
maybe light a candle. Uh, we're also going to have folks up here who will pray with you, who will meet with you. If you have questions or if you just want to lay a burden out and, and invite someone to pray with you. For some, you may be feeling for the first time this invitation to follow Jesus. And you just want to, how do I trust him? Because I like that invitation. If that's the case, please come and talk to us. But now we also have an opportunity to respond with our, with our practice of communion. But today, in light of this message, I invite you to come to the table and let the table be a richer place for you today. For yes, we want to remember the body of Christ broken for us. Yes, we want to remember his blood spilled to establish a new covenant, a new way, one that casts aside the world's brokenness and says there is better. But I also know that for God and for Jesus throughout scripture, one of the themes that runs from beginning to end is this idea of feasting and eating together, breaking bread. And Jesus even said in that last supper, I do this with great anticipation because the next time I eat with you, it will be in the kingdom. And he knew that that was going to be a place of abundance of nourishment, of beauty, and intimacy, even as we still do good, cultivating, generative work. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.